We are live on YouTube. Ladies and gents, welcome to episode 51 of Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments, your weekly trip into politics, uh, dystopia, a little bit of tech, a little bit of comedy. Uh, I'm your host, Aid Thompson, and joining me this week is a very special guest, a star of Sunny D, Bamus, and uh, star of the Edinburgh Fringe also, uh, Mr. Dane Baptiste. Welcome to the show, Dane. Thank you, thank you very much for that warm welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Aid, and, 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 and hello to everybody that is watching the stream at home on a Friday night. Yeah, man. I don't know what voice you're supposed to use for YouTube streams, so... I don't know. Yeah. Is it is it supposed to be sort of like cheesy TV production voice? Hey, guys! Or... It's me, Dane! Smash that like button! Something, something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. not, I'm not over 40. Shut up! <laughs> how uh, how are you doing? You you were saying a minute ago that you're you're battling COVID at the moment. Yeah, I'm, um, I, I uh, was out working last weekend, and I believe I have contracted the Omicron strain of the virus that has ravaged the planet over the last two years. Um, but uh, thankfully, I've not had any se se severe symptoms. I've just had some muscle pain and uh, a bit of a dry cough. And uh, yeah, need to go to the toilet a whole bunch. So I've lost some weight, probably. Yeah, um, that's good. Not, I'm not saying this is, but like, this is not any kind of nutrition plan or any kind of dieting plan. I'm just trying to make sure I cover myself and caveat. Like contracting the Omicron strain of COVID is not an effective method of weight loss. Do not do that. <laughs> so those are, are you sure? Listening. Like you, you've not gone like all Hollywood, you know, like before you were, you know, eating like yeah, me. But now you, yeah. you found a bit of success, Dave. Dane. Now you're on like a LA diet of like eating three leaves and shitting out five pounds a day. I, I, I do that. Hell yeah. But just <laughs> not with COVID. But all the other stuff. Yeah. The old, the leave, the leave big dump diet. Listen, it is all the rage. Southwest LA. That's where it's at, Aid. Is it? Yeah, I wouldn't know. I mean, I'm... Eats, shits and leaves. <laughs> Just like the book or whatever the fuck. That's yeah. how we're doing it. Good. Good to hear. Uh, well, I look forward to, to attaining that level of success where I get to sample that kind of diet in the not-too-distant future. I'm doing future. several shitty seminars. Not that are bad, but they're just very graphic. Yeah, huh? well, drop me the link, man, because like, we can sell tickets together, maybe. I'm going to dump it on you, dude. Big old link. <laughs> Big link. Yeah. Uh, so I suppose for like for the benefit of uh, of people who don't know, because I like obviously I rant a lot on here about politics, and um, I have a few kind of recurring guests that that step on and uh, and we rant about politics together. But um, like my background before I got into uh, tech and before I got into uh, ranting about politics was um, was stand up comedy, and I did it for a few years. And um, I think I'm right in saying that you and I sort of started around the same time because I remember gigging in Old Street with you uh, at one point and yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, a sort of mutual friend of ours, Tanya Moore, used to rave about, like, I used to run a night in Kentish Town and uh, Hoxton and I was asking her for, like, prospective headliners. I was like, who's good? Who should I book? She was like, book Dane, book Dane, book Dane. Um, do the best. When when did you start, man? Was it around that time, sort of 2012, 2013? Give, give or take, but actually, um, so first of all, interesting fact, so Tanya and I have been friends, like, I've known Tanya since I was 15, so mm. we grew up in, like, the same area. I, uh, I, I don't know why I keep telling people this, but I actually lost my virginity in Tanya's house. I thought you were going to say something way different then, but yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, so I'm trying to hook the people in, clickbait, that's how it works on these streams. Um, sure. Yeah, so, uh, with Tanya, so that's how... Uh, cool and accommodating tanya has been to me uh throughout my life uh so shout out tanya first of all um and then so yeah i'd say i probably began comedy in earnest in 2012 however my first foray into stand-up first time i ever took the stage was october the 26th 
2006. And uh, I gave it a go on a Sunday. Yeah, quite a while ago, I gave it a go on a Sunday. And um, I probably did altogether maybe three or four gigs before I just decided to kind of go on a hiatus again and go back to work. I was still working, but kind of just begin to work. And so I did what is now, I now understand is referred to as uh, the black circuit. And for those who don't know, the black circuit is basically rooms where you have predominantly a black audience. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, that's, there's not really a massive difference between that and a predominantly white room, uh, other than maybe some of the subject matter might be a bit more nuanced in the same way that it would be if you were performing in a particular regional area. Mm. Um, and what I found out was while you can get paid gigs on the black circuit very quickly, you arrive at the glass ceiling very quickly as well. And there's not, and I, and I appreciate there's no real linear path towards success, but it just seemed to all be very unilateral in terms of how you moved within the black circuit. So I couldn't really make head or tail of it. And I also was kind of winging it because I hadn't really worked on any stagecraft. And how, how do you mean there's the sort of glass ceiling there? Like, so, well, I guess it's because it was like, you, you're not going to chant upon a lot of executives or agents or representatives or any of the uh, auxiliary parts of the comedy industry, which are part of the elevation of a comics or a brand or their success. Right. So you, so I think someone put it very well, I think a comedian called Quincy, where he said, you know, the black circuit helps you to run a car, whereas performing mainstream will allow you to buy a car. Right. So, yeah. So it's like you can make a decent bit of money, but in some far as the scope for progression, it was like infinitesimal if it did exist at all. And was was it was there like real segregation between uh, the black circuit clubs and the quote unquote sort of mainstream clubs? Like, or, or did you find that even though you were headlining in some of like scenario A, when you went into scenario yeah. B, like the the mainstream, nobody had heard of you and wouldn't give you a chance. Was it kind of like um, that, or was it? Well, it's more the reverse, where I was like. I wasn't saying headlining, but I found myself on lineups with like very prolific comedians from the black circuit, where it was like a Richard Blackwood or Robbie G, who had been in the Des in Desmonds, um, uh, Jeff Schumann, who had been on a, a radio DJ on uh, Choice FM and had been like a comedy radio jock like way before, like a Chris Moyles, for example. And so, as being alongside these guys, you're like, oh, I've arrived. And then when you speak to your colleagues at work and they're like, I've never heard of these people, you're like, oh dear, then what am I doing? And uh, yeah, I, I think also it was um, yeah, it was and again, it was, yeah, it was, like you said, it was more like it was like the underground. Yeah, so people hadn't heard of that circuit and heard of some of the acts on there. And even though it was thriving within its own small um, microcosm, like the world at large didn't know that much about it. And I think for a lot of comics on the black circuit who hadn't been through the mill of going doing industry and having TV they also weren't necessarily aware of the large scope of comedy that's available. Right. Um, by the same, and I think for a lot of people, by the same token, the uh, steps that were required to prosper on a mainstream circuit are difficult for all people, including, so they, you may have black acts that have maybe been grinding for like five years or like acts that perform on a black circuit, I should say, for like maybe five years or half a decade. And then to try and explain to somebody who's worked to the point whereby they, they're commanding maybe 800 pounds for a headline, Mm. And open to go and do an open spot in Aspie de la Zouch for twenty pounds, so they can get in regular rotation with Spiky Mike's gigs. Yeah, it's just, it just too hard to sell for a lot of people. So I, think I suppose our ceiling, and for some people, it was just like I don't really see the point. And I think at the time when the the, the uh, that circuit was flourishing and it's most like in the late nineties, where you know we lived in an inflated economy for a lot of acts, both black and white, that did mainstream and a lot of 
acts that we refer to as like circuit acts or circuit the circuit guys. Yeah. You at the time, like you know, if you I remember someone telling me like in Bristol, for example, like, I remember I used to perform at the Junglers on Baldwin Street, and Junglers on a weekend might pay you 200 to 250 plus hotel accommodation, but around the area, there were about maybe another four or five gigs. So right. most that were playing there on the weekend, they could do an early show at Junglers, then they could go and double up on all these other places, and basically do a grander night. So Sweet. for a lot of people, when you're making a grand, if you're making a grand in one night, and that doesn't include what you're making during the week, the incentive to work towards being on television wasn't necessarily the same because you can earn a living doing what the hell you wanted, and away from prying eyes before the existence of social media. So the need to TV wasn't as great. So I don't think the impetus was there for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I guess for me, I was just like, yeah, there's, there's more to it than this, I guess. And uh, but at the same time, I just, I just wasn't really comfortable with myself, like just the rigors of going to work and going home and trying to build around that and not really having an idea of stagecraft. Like I made the schoolboy of a lot of comedians do, where I had one gig where I'm like, no, oh, it went really well, I'm funny. Another gig, oh, it went really well, I'm funny. So I'm like, now the formula is I say funny stuff and the people laugh. Yeah, yeah it's, that's not how comedy works. It's very much like music in that you have a radio single which is worth to promote to build your name by doing that same five minutes. And the reason why is because if someone heckles you or something happens and you have to react to the room, you want to be able to not deviate so much that you can't return to your set. Because if you yeah. lose a thread or you try to get or you get a wall from a, a, an act or you get a wall, sorry, from an audience member and you're not able to return to it and continue performing, then you'll struggle. So I had to learn that as well. So yeah, the time I took away was really to think about what I wanted to do with the opportunity to do comedy and how viable is it to do what I want and is it something I want to do seriously? And yeah, sometime around 2008 after the credit crunch, I think yeah. I had a, a big existential epiphany. And then yeah. Was it like a, a conscious thing then, like after the what global financial crash, you were like, do you know what? I may as well. It's like that Jim Carrey uh, speech. I don't know exactly if you've ever that. seen that. Yes, please. It's like, yeah. you, could, you could spend your whole life in a secure job and they'll just fucking lay you off and torture yeah. and, your and funny, dreams. And funny, yeah, you say that, 2008. I remember like maybe a few years, maybe 2002, my dad got a, was working at the Ford factory and mm. he was given a gift for perfect attendance. And that gift was a clock. And I was like, yeah, he don't need that, clearly. <laughs> Yeah. So I remember that was one of the phases. Then it was just being, I was working in media sales as well. And sometimes people would eavesdrop on conversations I'd be having. And I found that a lot of people would be very intimidated by how I spoke. Right. And I think I had maybe, when I left university, I had uh, one, like four jobs before I decided to become, a, to do comedy or four, yeah, four jobs. And at each of those jobs, one line manager told me, you might be smart and have a degree, but I'm your boss. Right. And I'd be and like, like, I don't remember asking you anything. Like, <laughs> why? But it would just be the that there'll be people that obviously have, have arrived at their position due to tenure and being there long enough. And then they're like, well, if this person naturally has an attitude or very clearly appear to be my intellectual superior as they saw it, they'd be like, well, yeah, I don't have a degree, but I'm still your boss. And I'd be like, all right, I don't remember saying otherwise. Yeah. Um, so that was like the second thing. And then, yeah, I just think, like you said, it was just the whole case of me being like, do you know what? This was like a deep-seated dream of mine and something fun I wanted to do and something I'd always had interest in. But um, I had spent time, I mean, around the time between me graduating and going to work, this was during a uh, a comedy dark ages where there hadn't been a show with a majority black cast, whether it was 
scripted or entertainment or sketch based on television for like 20 years. Right. And so looking for somebody to project onto or someone to emulate, I was like, well, I've only seen a black person on TV since Richard Blackwood. So I don't know what the fuck to do. And then yeah. 2008 was kind of like, well, I, I, I want to do comedy and give it a go. But what the fuck do I do? Ah, well, do you know what? I should probably apply myself. And so from 2008 to about, yeah, the end of 2011 was me uh, doing more reading, uh, more studying of the craft and looking at predecessors and looking where people like came from. And going like to school, basically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and basically taking myself to school and being like, let's try studying something you actually enjoy as opposed to all the stuff you've been doing because you thought that's what your parents wanted you to do. And, you yeah. know, also always, and it's always a part of the romantic story of, of the of the protagonist. Uh, first serious relationship ended in 2006 as well. So I had a lot of free time on my hands in the evenings and stuff as well. So I mean, that yeah. helps. Yeah, it really does. And it, it's kind of yeah. like instead of all that time and money and resources I spent putting into one person, it was like, well, if you took all of that energy and put it into something that benefits you rather mm. than for somebody else. And so... But then, the, like, is this, yeah. <clears throat> with, with the greatest of respect, <clears throat> is this sort of, was this that conscious of a decision at that time? Or is this you sort of looking back at that period and kind of like... Um, uh, adding a little flavor to your autobiography like were you sort of did, like at the I, time were you like do you know what i have been putting too much it, like i've invested too much into let's say this relationship that's now ended and you know the yeah. credit crunch and it's giving me a new light of perspective and or or did you kind of because i sort of kind of fell into stand-up but it sounds mm. like you had more of an epiphany than i did yeah the first time around i think i kind of more fell into it because a friend of mine basically told a promoter that i was funny and wanted me to do the show but I think it's after I got the taste for it, then I was like, I do enjoy it, but I want to be good at it. And mm. it was quite frustrating to not be able to maneuver and see a clear path on how to improve or have a wealth of opportunities to kind of hone the craft. Because there was a limited amount of gigs I noticed on the black circuit. And what was the, one of the main things I noticed on, in black rooms was no open mic. Right. Yeah, because the main thing about uh, the black rooms is their audiences kind of grew out of the fact that around 2006, the police basically were closing all the establishments and venues that played any like black music or had any right. nights on. So a lot of promoters that would historically promote club nights needed to migrate their audiences to comedy nights because they were seen as more acceptable to the police. Sure, so yeah. Those audiences are basically were who I was performing for. And so I was kind of limited by the spectrum of topics I could kind of use and stuff as well. And... You know, I was in my 30s. Most people were in their 20s that were going clubbing or in that. Yeah. So I was kind of like there was a bit of an age rift there as well. But it was just like I, I kind of the first time around, it was kind of like I did OK, but I felt like I was just winging it. Yeah. So what, when I when, when, I think which is always a part of the procrastination process, you like look at other people you look up to and stuff. And what one of the commonalities was is that like I remember I read Russell Brand's book and he went to Italia Conti then looking at Dave Chappelle, and he went to Duke at Ellington. So what seems to be common is that even though a lot of these guys do have natural comedic timing and they're naturally funny, people studied. Mm. And I was like, I've done okay, but I've blagged it. So again, it was like, what if you actually apply your effort to mm. this and see what happens? And like, so for me, a big part of that was the fact that it was like, I was aware that race, for example, as an issue in comedy, it was probably comedy was one of the one of the places I found it easy to cons easiest to consume discussions about race relations. 
Right. Uh, the case of a lot of people. But then I so you know because I looked at someone like Chris Rock. Adult. Chris Rock was one of the reasons why I fell in love with stand up. Like I was like 15. Yeah. Uh, Blacker. I was like, this is the this is the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but I was aware that that like bigger and blacker happened in like the 90s. So I was like, now to revisit that whole same thing, yeah. you have to take a very novel approach, especially because like 2008, like Obama is in power. Yeah. So even trying to explain to people that racism still exists already, people were like, racism? There's a black president. So yeah. already I was like, okay, well, that's it's weird how quickly people's... Uh, people's uh, minds have shifted so I yeah look into how to approach that and also because like you know my predecessors and the people i looked up to my idols whether it's dave Chappelle or chris rock they've done an excellent job of doing that and they're in a different country and it's a very different experience and so i wanted to learn the nuances of that experience and also because aid like i might be a black person doesn't mean i know everything about black people and I never wanted to go on stage and make sweeping statements that weren't representative of the people I'd claim to be representing. So I need to do my research. Also, well. Yeah, there's also probably like a, or, or is there, I don't know, I'm asking, but uh, kind of an expectation management piece to it where like you're a black guy, you get up on stage, there's going to be mm. a, an expectation on the audience's side like he's going to talk about race. And there must be a part of you that in turn is then like, like, do I have to talk about race or like am I... Am I already boxed in before I've even opened my mouth? Like, yeah. you know, it's both of that, and I think you know that's the why I think a lot of comedians, as they know, one of the first things you hear comedians say, especially at open mic level, is "I know what you're thinking," because they are aware mm. that it's a natural inclination of human beings to judge you on face value first. So people draw conclusions about who they think you are. So most comedians, their opening joke or their opening lines refer to them either like, you know. Um, removing the preconceived notions that people have of them or validating them or subverting yeah. them. That's how most of us choose to open stuff. So for me, like the pressure wasn't there. Necessarily. I didn't really see it as pressure because the people I looked up to did it and they did it so well. I'm like, cool, that's what that's what you're supposed to do. Like, that's what, that's what yeah, yeah. For me, it was like, that's what part of what makes you, your artistic matrix so good is that your social commentary is that you can opine on things like race relations very well. So it seems very natural to me. But then at the same time, it was kind of like, and I, it's probably became more of a point of principle when I started doing comedy was that just to, just for the sake of panache, I'd be like, I'm going to do 20, not mention race once, and I'll be better than every motherfucker that comes on behind me. So <laughs> like, that kind of person as well, because like it'd be one of the microaggressions people would go be like, well, going to talk about being black. You, you've got that, you've got that angle, haven't you? And I'd be like, I do. But just to make you even more pissed off, I'm not going to mention it once, and I'm still going to do better than you. And then tomorrow yeah, yeah. when we come here, I'm going to do a whole different 20, and it's still not going to mention race, and it's going to be better than yours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it, just going back to the the open mic thing, where you were saying about like going to school and studying it rather than blagging it, um, it's quite an important thing to to touch on there from a, a comedian's perspective, I think, because if people don't know or understand or love the open mic circuit, it's populated with fucking lunatics. Absolutely, and it's fucking insane. And it is, it's, it's and it's fucking like it's, insane for me. I, I'd, it, I'd argue definitely. And people might argue otherwise. I think it's the hardest part of comedy. Oh, for sure. I mean, I can't speak from a sort of, you know, professional comedian's perspective, but um, it was when I was doing it, it was fucking grueling. And I got to the point where uh, there's a couple of guys for a night I was constantly at trying new material and stuff um, 
who were like, oh, you could go, like, you could be a professional comic, you've just got to resign from your office job. And at the time, like, my girlfriend was pregnant, mm. I was like, I can't, I can't yeah, fucking take the hit. Yeah. So that, yeah, that was it, like, kind of dream smashed at that point. But, um, uh, but like, my my memories of the open mic circuit was, it, it was kind of populated with people who would, um, so you mentioned Russell Brand a minute ago. I remember seeing a guy in uh, Farringdon, who had hair like Russell Brand, and he was quite sort of erratic and sporadic, like and and very flowery with his vocabulary. It was like he was really set on pretending to be Russell Brand, but no fucking jokes. And it was fascinating to watch because yeah. I was like, I was like, it's like he he thought in his mind all Russell Brand is is this guy with crazy hair yeah. and a flowery vocabulary, and that's what makes the people laugh. And I was like, he doesn't. There's no sort of uh, scratching beneath the surface and kind of like understanding that there's a real craft yeah, <laughs> and joke yeah, writing yeah. and me- joke mechanics to all of the stuff that he does. And and that guy's not a lone shark in the, uh, no, no, in the open mic community. It's, it's fucking chock full of lunatics. It's full um, of lunatics. It's like, I'd, when people ask me about open, open mic is like, on the one hand, when you're trying to explain to people, because most people don't see stand-up at any other level other than on TV anyway. So most people's level mm-hmm. of understanding of stand-up is nigh on zero. Because when you tell people you want to become a stand-up, they go, oh, do you know what you should do? Here's my idea. There's a place called the Comedy Store. I imagine that comedy is stored there. Why don't you go there and perform? I can only imagine the outcome would be good. Hey, I've got a better idea. There's a show on TV called Live at the Apollo. If you appear yeah. on there, you become a bona fide comedian. Why don't you go there, knock on their doors, get yourself on a show? Yeah. That would be all right. And yeah. that was people's understanding. And I think, so doing open mic is, uh, it's it's kind of, um, it, be, it builds a steam of aspiring comedians because you're like, oh, there are other people that actually understand what the fuck I'm doing. Then mm. you're kind of like, are these the people that want to understand me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is this the tier that I'm yeah. on, really? But that's the thing, because comedy is like, especially uh, when I started performing in like primary white rooms as well, where they're midweek. <clears throat> a lot of them were in pubs and stuff. <clears throat> and by that same token, it's like, well, who are the kind of people who go to a pub during the week? Yeah. A large amount of them will be high-functioning alcoholics. Some of them won't be high-functioning. Some of them will be people that have nothing else to do. Some people are just coming after work for something to take a load off. Some people might be genuine comedy fans. Some people are just lonely, recently divorced, estranged. And, on a date. Yeah, or, yeah, on a date. So you have this mix of all people who... Uh, I guess are uh, either hiding their true selves or trying to present a best version of self, and they all try and then they rally around this comedian who they believe is the most comfortable with themselves out of everyone else in the room. And yeah, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts, and it's it's like I feel quite fortunate that I I bailed out of it all at the time that I did because I think if I had carried on slogging it and it hadn't turned into anything I think I would have become one of those guys who who's like yeah like I don't like I don't want to be ageist but like you know sort of a 57 year old guy who's been doing open mic for 30 years and yeah <laughs> his kids don't speak to him anymore and you know I don't uh, I don't want to I'm glad that's not my life you know yeah, I mean, there's a, and there's a, there's a lot of guys like that. I feel like, and that's, oh yeah, and because those people you leave, I've left out those people as well because there are some people in comedy who, I guess they're, 
they understand that comedy and public speaking provides you with an advantage that few people have in their normal day to day is that they're in a room speaking and everyone else is listening to them. And the, just yeah. the dynamic of how a comedy club appears that you're on an elevated stage. Now, when people are looking up to you when they're sitting down or they're standing up and they're looking up to you on a stage, there's almost this, the leverage changes almost automatically where the, you have the power. And some people can become very drunk on that power. And while they do that, then if they're so focused on that, then they don't really focus on anything else other than having their ego massaged by people indulging every word that they say. Um, yeah. yeah, like it's an opportunity for them just once a week, just yeah. once for five minutes, then you will fucking listen to me. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. and, they, and they say stuff like this. Well, I didn't think it was funny, but it's just a story I wanted to tell you. Well, yeah. you could have written a blog, sir or madam <laughs> or person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so if, if we cast our minds back to the to the open mic circuit and it, it is gruelling and it can be like there's a lot of drama that goes on in it and... Uh, and there's a lot of people who do get stuck in it for years and years and years. Um, you did not. You you slogged and studied and went to school and um, and found success at the Edinburgh Fringe. And now you're doing seemingly pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, why why do you think it was that you made it out and found success where so many other comedians just get stuck in the circuit? Because I I still know some amazing comedians who just haven't like caught that break. And they are great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, what is it that you think that you're, you're you're bringing to the table where you're like, cool, I can put it down to that? I think I think it's a number of factors that can contribute. Um, I think you know people. Is it like luck and persistence and hard work? And I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think mm. you know people say luck is opportunity met with preparation. So I think that's part of it as well as having the opportunity. And I think one one of the main things that definitely contributed to my later success was the fact that I had given comedy a go in 2006 then left it for a few years so I had already know what it's like to have experienced it and then had to walk away from it so that enough mm. was an impetus for me to be like you know what it's like not to have it so you have to work because you know you know what can happen if you don't work hard at it so I had that always behind me to be like now you need to apply yourself um, yeah I think one of the main things for me and is the drive. And the drive is not like me taking superiority of working harder than other comedians or smart necessarily. It's just that I always loved comedy as a hobby. Like it was just a part of my personality to like make jokes and just be funny. I never ever thought had any, ever never imagined I'd be able to do comedy professionally. Mm. So for me, like comedy was like, if you imagine somebody who is resigned to being blind their whole life. Then one day they go into a doctor's surgery, the doctor says, well, try something, tinkers with it, and then you can see. Like, if you've gone, like, 29 years of your life and you're blind, and then one day you can see, you'd be like, I'm going to spend the rest of my time seeing everything like <laughs> I fucking can. <laughs> yeah. So comedy for me was like, I spent my whole life repressing any creative urges I had, uh, repressing any dreams of comedy I had and then being able to do it and the first time I got 50 pounds for a stand-up set I felt like a millionaire yeah I've been paid this money I've made since then is obviously that's nothing to me but I, I felt, I've never felt that way yeah 50 pounds yeah. to tell jokes on stage for me I was like I'm gonna chase this feeling forever so for me it was yeah like, this... for me, it's just like yeah having the chance to do something I love and I, and, and I think that it, it informs my material and how I write it, how I approach it, how I interact with audience members, how I deal with other comedians, is that I feel like I got to live again. 
So that's why, yeah. if that's, that's how I think it's gone, was that there's always that drive that, even when I went to Edinburgh for the first time, I was kind of like, you hear the stories of Edinburgh and you hear about like some people perform to empty rooms and all these money losses. So I was like, oh shit, if I can go to Edinburgh for a month and just have a good show that people like for a month, that would be fucking amazing. Like if, as long as I'm not broke <laughs> and people come and, and like the show, that's so much. That's, yeah. So it was just setting, not really setting low bars for myself, but just, I just kind of, approach comedy with wonderlust more than just like financial um, objectives or like egotistical objectives. It's just like, I get to do what I love and I can write it myself and I can go and perform yeah. it myself and say it myself. I don't have to wait for no friends, no entourage, no one's holding me back, no girlfriends calling me a piece of shit. My parents can't tell me what to do. It's just me. That's, and so for me, yeah. it's like, it's, comedy is the first time I could just be wholly focused on developing my own uh, creative potential myself and so for me that I just, I just love it even now so there's something there's something about like that first like you mentioned a minute ago the first gig that you got paid 50 quid yeah. the first gig i got paid i think 25 something reasonably low um but it is it just lands differently when you're paid money to do something that you fucking love yeah versus just like like your salary is put like you know i don't know 10 20 30 40 times more than that every month but it's just your salary you yeah, know like okay. it comes in pays bills and so on but um yeah or, or like like when you make you make make your mates laugh around the pub table and it's like okay that's nice or you know you go in the kitchen and you're talking to your missus and you crack a joke and she's like hi you know it's funny funny whatever mm. but when you go up on a stage and you had an idea that afternoon at like half past two and then you're like, I'm going to try that later. And then you go up on a stage and then you just feel that idea just fucking ignite in a room. Like there's nothing like that. It's, it's, it's I've, the, it's I've the most met... human you can be. And that was like part of, like I said, this whole existential crisis. But this epiphany I was having was like, what fucking matters in this world, isn't it? Like money, because like I said, the credit crunch was like, well, you could save your money and you could have spent your whole life working towards following the same path of being a normal law-abiding citizen where you work hard, you pay your taxes, and at the end of your working life, you're able to have a private pension or a, pub or a state pension, and you live off that and you contribute to society. It's like a dodgy record deal, but most people take it. Then in the end, mm. they fucked us out of that. They fucked everyone out. And I was like, what? So you can be yeah. hardworking and you get screwed over because of bankers? I was like, this is, that's not serious. And so yeah. it was almost like, yeah, a supervillain story for me. It was like, I've tried to be the person that people wanted me to be, whether it was like law abiding and focused and, you know, studious and defying stereotypes that existed for my aesthetic. And they all got thrown back in my face. Like I said, at work, I worked hard. I dressed like I never had tattoos when I started, uh, when I worked in an office because I wanted to be, put myself in good stead to be an effective Same. office employee. And people just mm. laughed in my face. And um, yeah, it was for me. It was like you know my my my. Like I said the girlfriend I broke up at the time. Like my girlfriend at the time, I remember when she was going to university. When I used to go and stay with her, she never cooked anything for like I'd stay with her for like a good two weeks. She would never even have to cook in a, a student a student thing. Like there was no one else on her campus that was getting Chanel for Christmas. Like this is how I was provided for the person I was going to marry. When we broke yeah. up, she was like, "You're not going to be anybody. You're going to be in a council estate with some fucking whore." And you think you're funny. Richard Blackwood tried to chat me up in the club, so you're not special. And I don't know why I should settle for anybody just because they love me like you. That's what she said wow. to me. That's the last thing she said to me. And so for me, yes. doing comedy, I was just like, it's like a, it's like a supervillain story. 
Yeah. Like people. Wow. I mean, that's a hell of a motivator. Like yeah. if somebody was going to get like, it's like something out of a movie where they go like, you're never going to amount to anything. Exactly. And they're like, like, I'll show you. Yeah, exactly. All that, all that stuff. Like, and, and you know, I said people at work and the thing is like you said about friends and stuff like that. Everyone, everyone thought I was funny until I told them I wanted to be a yeah. comedian. Same. Then everyone was yeah. like, oh, you're not that kind of funny. What, what do you mean? Yeah. I say shit, I got, you like, laugh. So... I, I got gigs in, in my hometown. Like, after I've done run a few gigs in London, once I've built up a bit of confidence about not only being a stand-up, but also, like, running shit, I thought, I'm going to do a show in my hometown and show these motherfuckers how amazing I am. And, uh, and I took Tanya down there, and she did the emceeing, and it was a really good gig. And then afterwards, one of my mates came up to me, and he was just like, yeah, I really didn't think you'd be good. Like, I didn't... I, I mean, I thought, yeah, he's, like, funny-ish, sort of, but he's not, right, like, he's not a comedian <laughs> funny, but... And I'm like, that's a... What a fucked-up way to tell me that you enjoyed the show. Thanks, like... Yeah. People people are very strange like that. I, I, I definitely got something very similar. And uh, I even had one friend... Well, I met him through another friend of mine who played football, and I'd ask him if he wanted to come to a show and stuff like that, and he would always just literally just deflect away it or, like, I didn't say anything. And then I found out the reason why was because... Because he's a, he's a nice person... So he's not a very good liar. And what he didn't want to do right. is put himself in an awkward position whereby I was shit. And I'd be like, how'd I do? Yeah. And he'd have to lie to me. So he was like, I just ran the whole thing. It's, I, for me, it's avoidant. It's what we call, call avoidant now. But then he yeah. saw me once on TV and was like, hey, you're not shit. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and if I, I, I mean, it's the, it's the, you're actually funny. That's how people regard you as well. You're actually quite funny. You're actually funny. You're actually funny. Yeah. You're actually against my preconceptions. Yeah. I, I found you reasonably amusing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I will say this: like the, one of the first gigs I ever did, the guy was it was in Ballum, and the the promoter was like, "You have to bring down some friends. You got to bring down some friends." And I didn't know anything about the circuit at that yeah. point, so I thought, "Oh, this is normal. Like they just badger you to bring as many yeah. friends down as possible." And so I invited all of my friends. <laughs> and I'd done like, I think like two gigs before that. Uh, and I, and they all came down. And then the next day I asked my housemate, I was I was like, so what did you think? Like, how did it go last night? Did you, did you enjoy it? And he, he literally said this to like, he was such a like, wear his heart on his sleeve. He goes, um, he goes, it was amongst the worst entertainment I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. <laughs> like I was like, oh, like really hollowed me out. Like, I don't think he meant me personally. I mean, maybe he did, but uh, but it was for him, like, just being in this open mic room and it was, like, not dimly lit. Like, yeah. I mean, you'll be aware that there's there's an effect, right? There's a psychological effect on comedy if you dim the lights and it's a low ceiling and everyone's crowded chemical, chemical reaction. And... It's a chemical reaction. Like, people don't understand that about comedy as well, is that, like, when you're trying to emulate a conversation or trying to rapport build, it is like a chemical reaction, like... You can't perform it under certain conditions if the salinity is off, if the uh, dampness is off, the pH is off. It's, you know, in, in comedy's case, the equivalent is like, you know, lighting, acoustics, seating, mm. room temperature, uh, temperature of your audience, which is both a literal and a figurative um, expression. And all these things contribute in the same way that like, if you were like, Dane, can I have a conversation with you? And I'm like, sure, we can talk here. But if we're at the back of a speedboat, it's much more difficult. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. same thing of the comedy. Yeah. 
and I suppose like infamously in on the open mic circuit and like semi pro circuit, if you're doing that sort of stuff in a in a pub, if they've got a fucking football match on on like a TV yeah. over there, and then there's some couple over here having an argument, and she's sort of getting to the bottom of some cheating allegation. I know you fucking been fucking her, and you're like there to, trying to do your like. You're like the problem with having a big dick. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, timing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. timing is everything as well, and like. All of these things uh, contribute to trying to at least have the settings so you can have the chemical reaction with the audience. And even then, sometimes it might not work. You do get anomalies anyway. And that's the thing with comedy, it's, yeah. it's ongoing. It's, and that's the thing, it's, it's, it's a dynamic art form, despite what people think, it's dynamic and it's ongoing and you're learning all the time, you're changing. And I, and I think that's, yeah. that's the harsh lesson that people, when they start doing comedy, are reluctant to, um, to uh, accept. Because we all have asked the same questions. How, what do you do if they're going to be shit? How, how do you know you're going to be good right away? Well, how would you, what do you do if this happens? The answer to all of these questions to any aspiring comedian is, got to keep gigging. Yeah, Exper- yeah. Experience is the greatest teacher in comedy, is, and, and it's very different to any other type of uh, art form in that it's one that has to be regularly tested. Mm. Yeah, I, I always say, like, Number one, keep writing. Number two, keep gigging. Number three, don't let it don't don't let it fuck with your head yeah. <laughs> because it's like like you can do a gig on a Thursday night with a fairly sort of drunk officey crowd and you can lay your little introspective joke in there perfectly. It'll just fit in there perfectly with a little bit of crowd work and the next clever little bit that you that you had lined up and it'll it'll kill. And then Friday night it'll kill. And then on Tuesday night, nothing. Yeah. It's just dies and you're like well the joke like the joke is funny because i know but and then you start putting it apart like really analyzing it and you're like maybe it's the night of the week is it that they're too sober but then the the act that was on before me was fucking smashing it so it's Mm. not that you know is it like none of it really makes sense you can't draw an actual conclusion from it you just have to sort of get out of your head and go oh whatever yeah it's it's like you know you get, get back on the horse like, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, sh- chefs as 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 proficient and dexterous as they are, you cut off a finger in it, but you're like, but I've been cutting for years, but you're not gonna be like, I can never cut again after this happens. You got to stitch that shit back on, and, and go again and see what happens. And that's how you learn, man. It's it's like or like boxing is, uh, like boxing is, is, is as I said, it's not how hard you can hit, it's how hard you can get hit. And that's the thing with comedy. I think yeah. a lot of people don't understand is that like. The key is not just about what to do, how to make people laugh. It's what you do when they're not laughing. And that's how you, you learn that from experience. Yeah, that's a huge thing, isn't it? It's like when you when you first start, the idea that you crack a joke and nobody laughs at it is is like harrowing, yeah, yeah. a real like v- visceral murder that takes place inward. And, uh, I failed, uh, and I then failed in life, get... I failed. Yeah, why did I think I could do this? This is horrible. And then... The more you do it, you realise actually half of it is just realising that as soon as I walk up these steps out of this basement, literally no one gives a fuck. It's just I'm just another guy who told a joke and he thought it was going to be funny and like that's the end of it. But then the other thing, the other half of it I found was like learning how to kind of acknowledge that it didn't go well in a funny way. Yeah, exactly. Because the crowd feel like you're supposed to like... The supposition when you get on a stage is that you are more clued up and more in, in uh, non, more learned and more knowledgeable than the people you're addressing. And so if something happens, they expect you to be able to point it out before anybody else. Otherwise, you don't have control of the situation. So 
You find yeah. a lot of times, sometimes you might drop a, a clanger and it doesn't really go well, and you're like, well, that one will never be seen again by the light of day. And everyone goes, ha ha, as long as you know, buddy. <laughs> Where are now? Yeah. Because they know you're not trying to deceive them. There's comedy. Well, comedy is about truth. It doesn't mean necessarily mean everything you're saying is true, because truth is a matter of perception. But when you are delivering a truth, it has to be perceivable to people. Whether or not they agree yeah. with that truth or not, it's up to them. But they would have to it's see what like... you're saying and be like, I don't agree with it. But I can see it and I hear where you're coming from. Yeah. I, I like to think of it as that line at, towards the end of Westworld. Do you ever see that yeah, show? Yeah. Right. And there's a line in there where he dis he describes the narratives or something within Westworld as like he's like, uh, like it's a load of lies that speak to a broader truth or yeah. something like that. Like stories are a, a, a collection of lies that speak to a broader truth. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that quote, but... Um, and I like the idea that stand-ups get up on stage and they tell stuff to tell you stories that probably didn't even take fucking place. But the point of the story, the, like the crux that they're actually getting to is something exactly, that's yeah. true or something you could imagine to be true. Does that make oh, sense? Completely. Because, and that and was the thing yeah. as well, like a part of me learning the craft of honing material was that I wanted to create material that was thematic and not necessarily topical. Because I feel like mm. that gave my work a timelessness and also because I think, like I said, the enduring part of the stories told in stand-up, whether it's anecdotes and however surreal they are, it's the truth that people are seeking within that thing that uh, is actually matters, the, the truth in the punchline. So, you know, you can take a story yeah. which is a composite of a bunch of other stories that may not involve you, may involve people you're close to or a story you've heard in the news, but the truth about it is about you giving an honest opinion of it and that payoff being that other people in their quest for truth amongst themselves have also visited darker recesses of their own mind to process the same thing you're processing. And so they go, you think you said what everybody was thinking. Well, I don't know if I could say it probably. So yeah, that's really stand up yeah. is kind of about. And uh, yeah, I definitely agree about the sentiment about Westworld. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, did you ever, did you ever have a joke that you thought was going to fucking kill you? And you were like, this is this is so clever though serious i've peaked guys i've fucking peaked wait till you get a load of this shit and then you go up and it's like <laughs> so many times <laughs> carpet so <bomb>. many times <laughs> can you remember oh, any God, off the top? Yeah. um i think i'd said one about uh you know if you're a black man and you're shot by the police, then the, you should fall down on a football pitch because you'll get medical assistance on a football pitch as a black man before you get it anywhere else in a fucking hospital. And uh, then I think... See, I could see that working. Yeah, but it was, the timing was a the problem there. It was way too hard oh, for right. an example of police brutality. So I was like, no, no. And it wasn't like I was trying to yeah. make light of the situation. I was trying to use it to kind of like drive the point home. But people can be very sensitive about that kind of thing, so that didn't go down well. Then I think one of the more recent ones was where I was like, "Holly, Halloween should be called Hollyween because it's really a celebration of America's effectiveness of merchandising rather than anything else. Because no one really gives a shit about like the occult. It's like you're dressed as Captain America and it's Halloween. That's because a movie studio told you to do so. So, but then how does Holly? Fit? Oh, Hollywood. Yeah. Like, ah, I get you. So you it took me a second there. Yeah, I would have been one of the guys in the yeah. audience like, I don't know. So, so yeah. I think, I think, so what I have there is a premise. It's not really there yet. Yeah. But like, I've got a bit, like, I've got a bit that people can find online if they're watching the stream now. I do a bit on, like, strippers. Yeah. And that took me about three years to properly hone. 
Oh, mate. Do you know what? In, interestingly, that like that we're talking about this stuff because the gig that we did, that where I was on the same bill as you in Hoxton, I think I think it was just like a little open mic thing, um, uh, like a new material thing. And I remember you were on the bill, and this was I think this was after I had maybe tried to tried to book you. I can't remember if we ever got to emailing and sorting out dates or if there was some sort of conflict there, but. Um, I remember thinking, oh, like Tanya says that Dane's really cool. That's cool that he's on the bill as well. Um, anyway, I'll go up and do my stuff. And, you know, you were already at like headliner level. So I was thinking, I wonder if Dane will like find me funny. And I like up I get onto the stage. And I was trying out some like new ideas and stuff. And I did this uh, this routine about like I wasn't a father at the time, mm. about friends with kids mm -hmm. and how boring their stories were. Yeah. And, um, and it was the rawest, most unhoned routine <laughs> and rightly bombed like there was nothing in it yet like i, yeah. I knew there was something to it like mm. to the premise that i was sort of working on but i just hadn't like ground away all of the fucking nonsense yeah. and i hadn't worked out like the tone in it and i rightly died on my ass <laughs> so, <laughs> then i was like ah oh, well he's probably not gonna play my night <laughs> but um but yeah but then interest like so where you were saying a minute ago like it took you did you say three years yeah about like, three years to get it, to get it yeah it's a, yeah it's yeah probably about two years to sort that one out and then it ended up in my in my like edinburgh show and stuff nice. um so yeah like it takes time that's the other thing that people don't realize is that like i've got friends who genuinely and they're intelligent people they genuinely think stand-up comedians walk onto the live apollo stage <laughs> and they they're just funny they just start saying whatever's yeah. on their mind like here's a funny thing that happened to me oh fuck it this guy's instantly hilarious yeah. it's like a conspiracy um, theory as well people be like yeah, you know, Mock the Week is planned. Remember, but you didn't hear that from me. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> people to be like that. Yeah, I thought they write in advance. But you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> Expose. Yeah, yeah. People be like that all the time, but it's it's a again. It's just I know comedy is a weird thing where it can the levels of respect and integrity for the art form are can be very binary in that you're either down there with like kids party magician or cosplayer. Or you're up there where like comedians are so prolific, they're the people they ask to host the Oscars. So yeah. we are the ones that are the linchpins holding together all these other displays of like dramatic performance. So between all of that, most people are just completely clueless. And uh, I think it's one of these things where the act of making people laugh and laughter being a universal language means the barriers to entry in terms of making people laugh are so low that everyone thinks they can do it, not realizing and I think what I normally do when people say, oh, I think I can be funny. I say something like, well, I think your mother's a whore. Now go, <laughs> now go and do it. Because the idea, because what people understand is that when you normally observe joy or humor amongst your friends, your mood suits that, suits the whole sentiment. Yeah. I could have the worst I had in my fucking life or come back from a funeral. I still got to go on stage and make these people laugh or... I can maybe go use a, to a communal toilet before I go on stage and hear, you know, things that are borderline racial microaggressions and the horrible mm. shit being said. And I still got to go out there and entertain these people and make them laugh. Does it still, like, when you go out and you do a routine that you've done, like, you know, 20, 30, 40 times before, do you still get anything out of it at that stage? Or do you, because I remember doing, I used to have a, a joke about, like being super single like like everyone does um 
but like how at the time I was really, really single and uh, I would crack this joke at every, like it was my opener. And it got to the point where I was like, I don't even know why this is funny anymore. Like it's just, it, they're just sounds that come out of my mouth. It's like a singer, you know, like the singer isn't yeah. thinking about the woman that he broke up with when he's singing the song about the woman that he broke up with. Cause it, like by the time that yeah, he's yeah. singing there in Brixton Academy, the words have lost all meaning. So is it exactly. like, is there an element of that for you now at this stage or? I think for some parts, some, some, there's certain elements of material, there's certain bits of material that I'm probably less inclined to do more often than others. But I think, again, it's like, I just make it a point of principle to keep things exciting for myself. Because, mm. you know, you're, you're the author of your own material in comedy for, for the most part. Um, for me, it's about how can I make this more exciting to deliver? So I try to just keep up my productivity, or if it's an old part, which is very, which might seem quite dated, try to revisit it with uh, more experienced eyes. Mm. And you can get so much more out of comedy when like, if there's, a, so if I do, for example, I do a set where I talk about something and it leads to me doing a physical bit of comedy, Let's it's more about, let's learn how you can be more expressive with that comedy than you were five years ago. Cause you're more comfortable with this part on stage and you know it works. So rather than doing this safe part, you know that work, this part of it works, why not? focus on this other part that was a bit weak and work on that instead or it was this whole thing like when you was, I was researching bits of comedy and there was the whole thing that Louis CK used to say where it's like take your strongest closing bit and put that at the top I love that and advice then, yeah so yeah so then you've got to be work harder to get a stronger closer so that's the kind of thing I started doing and stuff as well so it can it can become boring but I think my advice is then yeah like you do in any other relationship is that you, your comedy depends on you having new experiences and you learning and you know developing wisdom and that should all inform how you perform that comedy so yeah I think the way to, I, I've had points where I do feel a bit burned out or you might feel that material becomes quite stale mm. but I'd say there's always a, there's no such thing as like a perfect perfect peak bit so I can always go back and tweak it and be like is there a way you can perform even if this if this punchline has nine words in it can you still make it funny in eight seven six yeah jamali maddox told me once that um he i think he was talking about dave attell mm -hmm. and he was saying that there was some joke on his at that point new special and he he described it as he was like man there's like no fat on that joke there's like he's yeah. like it's just trimmed down to the you know the key sort of like punch points and um yeah. i was like like it's always stuck with me that mm -hmm. Um, so uh, another thing, uh, sorry, Karen. you know, like, you know, you get those chefs who are like, you know, there's experts on sushi. So they, where they, where they can cut like a piece of sea bass is so perfect. And I, I, I mean, I am not there yet necessarily, but I, I, I think that's the idea. Like Jamali says is that it's working to always trim the fat off jokes and just always work to preen it. Like how, cause you'll get to the point where like, if you start to learn audiences and you start to understand your presence a lot more. You can get a lot more out of things just by physical action. Some, some, some. Like if you're comfortable enough on stage, and you understand, because even though as important as stand-up is, and you know we focus on our words and we're erasers, but ninety percent of human communication is still non-verbal. So if you yeah. can begin to rapport build without even opening your mouth, and there's like breath control, you can still begin to elevate the heart and stuff anyway. So the more about yourself you understand, the more that kind of feeds into your comedy. I think. That's a really difficult thing to learn, though, isn't it? I think that's the real, the skill and the uh, the longevity of it is that so many people, I think, want to kind of rush into it 
um, they want to skip a few steps. They want to jump straight to getting like paid yeah. headlining yeah. work. And, yeah. and it's, it, it, there's also a hit on the ego that you have to accept that people look at you a certain way. Like everyone wants to believe that they look like fucking Tom Cruise in Top yeah. Gun. <laughs> oh, I'm Mr. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, uh, but the actual inconvenient, awkward truth is that, you know, maybe like when I walk on a stage, maybe I do look a bit goofy. Maybe I look a bit nerdy. Maybe there is something that I should tap into there. And there's there's an uncomfortable acceptance that I or like yeah. other comedians need to reach. Absolutely. I, I don't know if I, I think that I could totally see that being a stumbling block for a lot of particularly crazy open micers, you know? Yeah. I got, and I think the, the difficulty comes from the fact that people try to negate that. So mm. where you talk about embracing it, again, it goes back to your privilege or the position you're in as a comedian is that people presume that you have more keen observation than anybody else in the room. So even if you do look nerdy or inadequate and awkward, you're supposed to know it before anybody else. Because, yeah, which is yeah. sort of goes back to what you were saying before about like when comedians walk on stage and they go, I know what you're thinking, you know, or, or yeah. they have like a... Um, once, once, once you you know what they because if you if you do know what they're thinking they'll be like oh that's cool yeah he so gets like, it yeah. yeah he gets it he gets it and 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 that's, and that's the big part of you know all human interaction is that we're a social species and what we want to do is to be able to project on other people and see parts of ourselves reflected back on us and that can normally be that can be a positive and negative thing it's about really how you want to manipulate that as a comedian. Because a lot of time, because I've had a lot of time people say stuff like, I just don't get comedy. I don't really get it. And what they mean by that is what their understanding of comedy is, is ridicule. So they're, oh, right. they're ridicule. So I've done shows and like in black rooms where people, I just don't get jokes. I don't like jokes per se. And that's because <laughs> most people understand comedy. Their understanding of it is ridicule. That really? Jokes, yeah, that jokes have to be made at someone else's expense. Particularly, particularly women, you know, because, you know, for... A lot of men who might, you know, derive from self-esteem that they don't try to domineer or aggress women physically, what they do instead, because around the time, like, if you remember, like, 2006, 2000, 2000 when, like, the whole pickup artist movement began to gain strength and there was a whole book, The Game. So this culture of negging became mm. quite prevalent in modern culture where it's an idea where you're supposed to give women these backhanded compliments but at the same time attack their appearance and then... You know, what we now understand as gaslighting and, and the like and stuff like that and stuff now, these things were given, were considered valid ways of approaching and talking to women in 2006 and 2008. You know, even I had no idea that there was this notion that women weren't funny until I did stand-up comedy. Mm. And I genuinely believe that stems from the fact that a lot of men have found that humour, or I should more appropriately say ridicule, mm is a way that they're able to dominate and aggress women without actually visiting any kind of physical or sexual trauma on them. So, yeah, I feel like, as a result of which, a lot of time people become very defensive. Mm. The same way that, like, in a pub, normally the person that everyone gravitates towards is the one making jokes and holding court. Mm. So I had other open mic gigs where there'd be, like, that... Uh, um, like maybe Liverpool Street or maybe like it'd be in the banking district and there'd be some banker who's come through a pint and he doesn't understand why everyone's paying you attention on stage and not him. Right. Uh, so you get to pick up these things about people because cause comedy is universal and laughter is universal, it's a leveller. Yeah. You can't buy a sense of humour. 
and you're yeah. kind of financially influenced one. People might be sycophants, but you know the difference if people are laughing because you told them to. Everyone knows the difference. Yeah. And everyone knows the difference between being laughed with and laughed at. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's learning to kind of identify and manage these things and understand what people... Because once you understand that about people, you also understand how to make them laugh and what's approaching them because sometimes people might not laugh because, again, they I, what they perceive comedy to be can make them feel very guarded. So sometimes comedy can always be used as a very good icebreaker in that kind of respect. Do you still know many people who say that they don't think women are funny? No. I don't no. know them personally because, yeah, they just don't really go very far, obviously. And uh, I also yeah. don't want to be around that kind of person as it is. So it's weird, know, I, isn't it? I never, I never, I could never understand, especially because, like, and I say this all the time, it's like most human beings on earth, if you ever laughed, the, probably the first time you laughed and smiled, a woman made you do it. Because I don't think most dads are the ones making the faces and offering up the breasts and doing the coochie coos with kids, or you might do it, be like, this is fun and I love you, but this is kind of boring now. Whereas mothers will relentlessly continue to try to entertain a child, identify with a child, so children begin to mimic what they see as a smile coming from their mother, stuff like that. So it's like, if you've laughed, probably a woman made you laugh at some point in your life. Yeah, so, it's also the cliche yeah. of like the dad joke, like, oh, so if women aren't funny, so you're telling me it was your dad, really? Your dad was cracking yeah, exactly, jokes? Yeah, <laughs> exactly that, because I'll tell you for free, I've, I've not laughed at anything my dad's ever said in my life. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a funny person. It's just not. It's just not how I perceived him. Yeah. He, he was not the joker of the family. That's for sure. My dad laughed once, very loud, and it's when I asked him to buy me a pair of Machino jeans, and he was like, <laughs> "How much?" <laughs> That's funny, son. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, like I. So I was raised pretty much by my like my mum. Like me and my brother lived with my mum, and uh, my dad lived uh, sort of forty-five minutes away. And um, yeah, like my mum was always sort of. Like, not sort of comedian funny, but, like, as in, like, she wasn't showy at all. But yeah. she was, like, fucking effortlessly sarcastic and sort mm. of quite witty. Um, and then, yeah, like, just going up, like, growing up and then having a few female friends and, like, going on the open mic circuit and meeting people like Tanya and meeting people like, um, fuck me, what's her name now? She's got quite big. Sarah Callahan. Yeah. Um, and like, and I, I still know people from in my hometown where they, their opinion is, nah, fe like female comedians, not, nah, not fast. And I'm always like, you're fucking nuts because you're like, you're missing out on a whole oh, chunk. Of... They know, they know what they mean. What they mean is that if I try to neg this woman, she's able to defend herself, and so I have no basis for superiority over her, and that intimidates me. Is what they mean. When, when, do you think it's that? Because I think they would. What they mean is. I am scared or intimidated by a woman having the power to ridicule me. Yeah, you could be right. I mean, I think they would contend that it's not that. It's just that they don't get the scientific -y chemical reaction from when a woman is standing there with a mic and cracking jokes in the same way as they would do with a man. But I don't, it's it's not that I empathise with that position. It's just I can already hear their voices sort of saying that that's, yeah. that's where they're coming from. But you might be right. It might be like a subconscious, like, oh, yeah, it's, 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 underneath it's, it's that's a, a gender-based bias where, hmm. you know, because if a woman tells the same joke a man tells that's written down and delivers it the same, what fucking difference does it make if she's talking about something that doesn't pertain to her gender anyway? Like, yeah. what, what is she talking, if you're telling me, if you're telling me an anecdote about something you saw, why, why does the fact that your, your voice is octaves higher make a fucking difference?
So, yeah. Well, also, like, there's a whole other fucking, like, a prism that it's coming through as well, yeah. which can be all the more hilarious. Like, you can listen to fucking a thousand men in the London open mic circuit cracking a joke about how they went out on a date and, you know, they really liked the girl and then she didn't call him again and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's like a man's perspective mm. always. But, like, it's there's something new and refreshing when a woman is up there Absolutely. cracking her side of the story, right? It's like... It's completely... And, and that's, that's always been one of the best, biggest benefits of comedy for me is the fact that, like, it's offered me a narrative and an account from groups that I would have never really heard of in my normal day-to-day. -day. Like, I would never mm. really heard about what it's like to live your normal day as a transgender person or a non-binary person or even as a regular woman living under patriarchy until I did, until I did stand up. And I was initially resistant to it at first because I remember speaking to a comic, uh, Annette Fagan, and we were talking, like, Annette's based in uh, Birmingham and stuff, and we were talking about this, the, the circuit, and I was like, you know, it's hard if you're a black person, blah, blah, And she was like, yeah, it was hard if you're a woman. I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, it's harder if you're a woman. I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, because I bet you've never been told you can't be on a lineup because they've already got enough black people. And I was like, oh. So mm. she had to, and, you know, open the world up. And, cause, and I came from a place of male privilege where I was like, well, I would never tell a woman she couldn't do anything, so no one would be that stupid. So I had to have my eyes <laughs> opened up to the level, like, uh, the, how deep it runs. And, and it's because, as I say, it's like, you know, also in a patriarchal society where the narrative of women is not really indulged anyway. So yeah. comedy, just by its nature, when women are performing comedy, is rebellious anyway. Because for a start, it, thriving within or working within pop culture, normally pubs are where men go to escape their, their partners and escape women. Which is why in working men's club, he'd be like, meet my mother-in-law, take my wife, please, take her. Because, you know, men would be yeah, talking about yeah. their woes and their angst about having a wife and all the rest of it. So there's something very primarily feminist about women in stand-up because people don't listen when women talk. Like, that's one of the things, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, that's yeah. what women, think... women listen to. I, I think you're right. I think there's a sort of, there's a, an inherent or, like, innate threat level that gets prodded like prodding a bear when a woman is on stage with a mic and has the power yeah. if you like and he's let's say the guy is in the second row and he's been a bit chatty a bit heckly um the idea that he could be given a dressing down by somebody like tanya yeah. who will fucking eviscerate yeah. <laughs> uh and leave him humiliated, feeling stupid and silenced, uh, I think is a big problem for, for, of men. for men of a certain... Because if you get punched in the face yeah. and you fall down, you get knocked out, your bruises heal, and, you know, men's alpha displays of masculinity are a natural part of society. If you get humiliated and get ridiculed, those bruises don't heal as quickly. And that's the mm. thing, it's like, you know, it's the same way with men with heartbreak. Like, there's no physical detriment to your body, but you know you've been hurt. And we don't have the emotional intelligence or we don't really uh, nurture the emotional intelligence to deal with that. And ridicule is exactly the same. We see either having our heart broken or being made fun of by a woman at these points of ridicule are things we have no mm. real, uh, we've not really developed any tools to defend against. Yeah. And so then what we do is we seem to sort of default to this aggrieved state where we're like, I have to right this wrong. She doesn't understand how amazing I am. Yeah and how perfect we would be together, so I'm going to go and fucking now, do if, God knows now, what. Now, if you think about the fact that, like, most women experience some form of sexual trauma or another, 
before they're 18. Like, it's 90% of women, whereas, like, catcalling or being shouted at from a building site. If women had microphones as well and they could say something like, not with a dick that size, how, how much <laughs> do you think that would be reduced? If when we have to hear yeah. microaggressions of a sexual nature in the office or in any other social situation, if they could just go and grab the mic and be like, your uncle Fred just asked me to show him his tits here at this barbecue for your <laughs> nephew's fourth birthday. Like, it, it would start happening <laughs> a lot less. Yeah. But weirdly, it would be quite a good gig, a gig if like, they had... Like, you know, a lot of, yeah. like, you know, the groom does a speech at a wedding. But imagine if the bride was kind of like, well, I'm happy to be here at the same time. I feel like... Uh, you know, mother kind of pressures me to kind of re re replace you, replace her, and maybe you're more of a sunburned than a husband, and it's fucking weird. And, you know, <laughs> your mother needs to understand this, this yeah. will be the last vagina that you'll see, even though her yeah. was there when you were born. Like, you know, a lot yeah. of people are afraid of what women will say. Like, people are afraid of, like, you know, fear fear of, of, a, of, a, of a black womb, you know, in Tanya's case. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that we're sort of, you know, we're moving on to this like social justice -y stuff now because obviously I'm a, I'm aware of your activity on Twitter and um uh and you're clearly a much bigger name than I am. Um but I am curious sometimes because I get told that if I'm if I harbor any aspiration to grow this podcast to some sort of, you know, commercial level that uh, I should tone down the politics a bit or I should stop calling Brexiters fucking morons or I should, you know, because potentially what I'm doing is cutting my audience mm -hmm. in half and or like offending half of my prospective um, listeners and so on. Do you ever get told that sort of shit? Do, do people ever go, look, you're a great comedian and you're doing great, but can you just tone down the social justice stuff? Oh, yeah. Because you're going to alienate yeah. people. The last or... person that told me that got fucking fired. <laughs> yeah, really? they did, actually. Um, I, when I, so one, another unique part of my journey was that when I started doing comedy and I guess you go to these stages where you get to the point where you're, uh, appealing for representation or trying to seek out representation. And as I said, uh, the, the industry wasn't as receptive to black creatives as they appear to be now. And diversity and inclusion was not really bounded about as a term back then, as much as it is now, like 10 years later. Um, so... Mm. I say that because at the time I used to perform, most, one of the places I used to perform frequently was up the creek in Greenwich. And mm -hmm. the, uh, the guys that run the show there would try and get industry down to watch the new and emergent acts so they could kind of see the potential and grab them early. And uh, even though I was having a good time and I'd always get good shows at the creek and I'd, they'd have their like a one the gong show kind of thing or one to watch. And I'd get to the final mm -hmm. and I would never win. And then Noah would pick me up and one of the agents actually quoted a saying we already have a black act on our books like why do we need two oh so that's interesting going off what your friend was saying a minute ago yeah. like about women being like bumped off the list because they've yeah, already yeah. got a woman so, and, and, and it was actually a woman that said that as well uh, funnily enough and uh so everyone's fucked um but basically wait hang so when was this this, this must have been, been like what yeah around 2013 i'd say this is so fucked because like coming from you know i'm a, i'm a, a home counties white mm -hmm. guy and the way that we're raised and and educated in the school system is almost as though racism is this like retrospective yeah. thing that you know we learn about there were some bad guys called nazis and they killed lots of jews and in america then there was lots of bad yeah. racism but yeah, over yeah. here it's pretty good slavery and then there was then rosa Parks got on the bus and then she sat at the back <laughs> 
And then Martin Luther King came along and everything went from sepia into full colour and we had present day. <laughs> yeah, and then everything was great. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's, it's, it's uh, I suppose it sits comfortably into that privilege uh, arena, doesn't it? In, in that, you know, I've come up um, through my teens, 20s and 30s thinking that to a greater or lesser extent, things are kind of all right yeah. for but everyone. That, that, and that's, it's a really interesting point to say about privilege because that's the biggest privilege. And, and I think a lot of people who exist outside of whiteness don't understand. The privilege is not just people just assuming a position of superiority. It's the privilege of benevolence and oblivion. Mm. Not that the white people at large in this country are all bad people actively seeking to subjugate non-white people. But if you don't see black people and you don't see anything or any physical evidence of suffering or marginalization, it's really hard for you to understand what it's like. Like I said, because I was, because like I said, for me, I was like, I could never imagine making a woman feel uncomfortable sexually in a green room if me and her are in there. No man could ever do that. It's a place of business. That's insane. How could you mm. do that to somebody knowing yeah. for you have to see them again? So I had the privilege of thinking, yeah. I have this chivalrous idea and so it should be fun for women. Because so the privilege of benevolence, because I don't yeah. do it and I don't see this seedy shit, I think it's fine. So, well, it's actually more more broad than that as well, isn't it? I, I, I sort of refer to it as um, like petrol forecourtism or like em empty shelvesism yeah. in that what people love to do is tell themselves a very, very simple, self-flattering mm -hmm. story. Uh, something something that's easy to digest. So take a complex situation like supply chain of yeah. food or supply chain of petrol and the complexities around Brexit and the blame game between Remain yeah. and, and Brexiters. Uh, and then like do you do you want to engage on that conversation or is it just a lot easier for you to go down to your local petrol forecourt and then go like huh, well there's no petrol shortage in my forecourt so therefore yeah. everyone else in the uk must be perfectly fine like and it's exactly the same exactly. right it's like i'm you know here i am saying like really dane like you were overlooked for a position like because you were black in what in in the 21st yeah. century that doesn't that's sound right. yeah that's no, that, that wouldn't like, happen yeah. in my local no, comedy club. So therefore, couldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like exactly, yeah. And, and that, and that was, um, and that also is a big part of me having to definitely reanalyze how I approach the conversation about race relations, because I think what a mm. lot of my predecessors and even some of my contemporaries, the mistake they make is not understanding the people you are speaking to who are already watching you on stage. They're not necessarily the people you need to convince. In the mm. same way that, like, I don't have to go on stage and tell women I'm a feminist for two reasons. The first one being it will be shown in my set. They're not idiots. Mm. They'll be able to tell, number one. And number two, I don't need, if you don't need to go and show the people, women, that they are human beings. That's not the key to you addressing this issue. It's in spaces where their humanity is being marginalized is where you have to say something. And so that, and in the same way that like to me performing to white audiences was understanding, I'm not just out here to tell you you're racist and tell you the what, it's why yeah. and the how. Because most people, even when they discuss racism, are only speaking about prejudice and racial rhetoric. Most people don't understand the difference between what is institutional and structural and what is prejudice mm. and rhetoric. So. All this stuff makes sense together in that that person who said we already have a black act may not have even been speaking from a place of malice. As I said, we were in a time, at the time, the last TV show with a majority black cast 
was 20 years ago. Now, you think about yeah. that, that's roughly the size of a generation. That means you have an mm -hmm. whole entire generation of predominantly white people that have grown up in the UK with nigh on zero representation of black people in media. And the ones they do see probably exist in a very narrow type of aesthetics, which are going to be either mm. sports, music, and crime. And therefore, mm. you only have three narratives that you're able to perceive for black people because they're the only ones you really see. So of course, when someone says this is an act, your mind's already like, well, I don't even know what they're going to talk about because black guys talk about this stuff and I can't relate. So what happened really was that like a lot of other acts were kind of love people apprehensive. So I said to my management, well, do you know what? I said to them, well, I'm already performing in clubs. I'm doing headlines a lot of places anyway. If TV does come back in, I just don't want to get, get fucked over. So you're already a producer. So I'll just send you the contracts. I'll give you 15% of what I earn of those. And then that's your... So I was basically going to outsource that to you. And she was like, cool. Yeah. And then she came up to me a couple months later and was like, I've quit my job. And I decided to become a comedy manager. So I really need for this to work, Dane. And I said, cool. So I took that brand of Up The Creek and I was like, I'm putting this on my back and gonna make, and so have to be the flagship act and make this all work. And yeah, you fast forward 10 years and they're doing the O2 as a black British takeover and that's sold out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I kind of was like to one of my agents, my agent had like a PR person and the PR person said to me, cause I was talking about like in 2020 when there was a much larger conversation about race relations and 2020, yeah. I was saying to people, I remember being told 10 years ago that they don't want to sign me because they already got a black act. And then my mm. PR was like, I'm not sure if you should say that, you know, because that person is still cool with us and something, something Netflix. And I said, you're fired. Because mm. I'm, not, I'm not curtailing my speech for anyone. I'm not mentioning anybody's names. And this whole idea of not rocking the boat when the sea is on fire, it's just a waste of time. So, yeah, I think, I think for me, again, it's... Maybe it's because the comedians that I was weaned on, social commentary was a natural part of their work anyway. And also satire yeah. has always been a cornerstone of British comedy, particularly because we live in a country that's a lot more stratified by class. Again, because comedy is universal and the leveler, one of the ways the working class, the middle class have been able to rationalize their position in a class-based hierarchy is having the ability to ridicule those who are above us. That's why we talk about this whole paradigm of punching up and punching down. Because, sure. like, you know, I can't usurp the Queen, but I can make some jokes no. about Buckingham Palace. And that's the great leveller. The, je the court, court jester yeah. can't really kill the King and take over, but he can be a voice for the constituents he represents who are the peasantry and also have a discussion with the King under this guise of comedy that doesn't appear to be insubordinate. And so, yeah, I think that... That, that's yeah that's exactly why addressing classism i suppose is so important in comedy uh and i like you hear a lot about you don't hear it so much like when when you talk about working class comedians getting a catching mm -hmm. a break in the tv industry it tends to be like white working class doesn't it when we're having that yeah. conversation. well most people don't understand like pe most people don't understand how classism grafts a pod race anyway because again as i say it's a middle-class black person who def they definitely exist, but it's an archetype that's so seldom seen in mainstream media, people yeah. can't really conceptualize it. Because even for the people that came here in the Windrush, as we all know, for you to even have the money to immigrate, immigration is expensive. 
So yeah. most of the time, the working class from countries within the Commonwealth don't even make it to the British shores because who can afford to pack up and leave? Uh, yeah, it's like that, that that whole sort of ridiculous argument that, um, oh, well, the, the guys who pay £20,000 to get into a dinghy yeah. are going to be broke and then living off... Um, living off like that they're, they're desperate yeah, for, yeah. for 20 pounds a week like they're cut they're coming here in droves for 20 pounds a week even though they had like you know 20 grand yeah. if they were that desperate for money they wouldn't have paid the 20 grand to the asylum seekers smuggler types yeah, yeah, right exactly. it's a similar sort of and, and even thing, that, that kind of statement is, is like you said it's it's that whole people just trying to justify their apathy by it's a simple story yeah. again they just they want a simple good versus evil yeah. story and in that uh paradigm what they're looking for is these evil brown people are trying to get across the sea to get a free house and blah 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 but as soon as you start getting into the complexities and the nuances of it um they think you're calling them stupid as i found out so <laughs> sometimes they are stupid and i, I don't think we yeah, need to arrive at, thank I don't, you. we don't need to arrive at, and i can let you know and it may have it may have damaged my career i may have experienced several shadow bands but Social media is just media. It's not representative of my life. And sometimes, even when you're calling people stupid, are they really people or are they the fiction? <laughs> well, in, in that, remember when, when people present themselves on social media, they're not necessarily presenting themselves because you can somebody with I a pseudonym or an avatar. You don't know if the gender of that yeah. person because all they have to do is fill drop downs in or create a fake, a fake email and they can create a likeness or, and they can create a. Uh, a straw man of themselves in order for them to engage with this mm. course with you on social media. So if you call that person stupid, oh, well, in real life, it doesn't matter because that's not who they are. So Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and, so and, and but the other stupid. thing, I don't understand why yeah. the, the thing is because you're, we're living in a time where people are experiencing the first true taste of democracy, how that is manifesting is got everyone going crazy because no one's really seen this before. So even now, when like people are having arguments over like, so again, that's that's one of the problems where you, you've probably seen the rise of like right wing or alt right extremisms or these resurgences of white supremacy is because one of the biggest privileges that white people had was like I said, the privilege of benevolence. No one's ever told mm. you people they're pieces of shit before in white culture, or that they're mm. ignorant to the plight of other human beings before because they because as far as they know, I read the newspaper, Africa's poor, we send them aid, so we're doing the good stuff. But they've never heard people yeah. say to them, but for every pound you send, a million's been stolen. They've never mm. had to hear that before. Like, if you're a white guy that's been weaned on films like American Pie, you see it naturally, you see a reflection of yourself where I might be a nerdy guy, but at the end of it, you know, I say to the girl, all right, I was a bit nerdy and I did some duplicitous stuff, but I love you. And she goes, you love me? And you go, yeah. And she goes, that excuses everything. Let's get married. But in real life, 42% yeah. of white marriages end in divorce so not everyone's yeah. ready for that for that not everyone's ready for that reality and that's why you have the rise of incels because these men have been told that by the just by the merit of me being a nerdy guy that's a nice guy that hasn't had a lot of sexual partners a woman will see that good part of me and it'll be fine and then they find that in real life actually in a world where women are given the autonomy to make their own choices and they're not pressured you might not get chosen and so for a lot of men yeah. it's like what the fuck so she still ends up with the guy that's in shape. Yeah. Like, it kind of goes back to the ego thing. Like, so many men have so much of a problem actually taking time 
to understand where they really fit in in the pecking order and whether they could be chosen and whether they have much to offer. And so then they get in this situation where they're like, right, I want her. And then she goes, uh, I'm not interested or I've got a boyfriend or whatever. And they just can't oh, fucking take it. it. And the world, and the world you know? seems so much smaller now that it was almost a matter of principle. Like if you was a white guy who grew up in a home county, you probably would end up with somebody who didn't live more than maybe 10 kilometers away from you. But yeah, now probably. these same people can swipe you away and be like, I want somebody taller. Yeah. And I know how to get to them. Yeah. And I can jump in an Uber. So now that that this this the, so which is like true democracy, there's a much broader choice. But before democracy yeah. was more what we called democracy was more about an an oligopolistic thing where there was a few ruling parties who had the money and resources to be able to have choices and they normally prevailed. But And they would give you the illusion give you of choice. Illusion of, They'd be like, yeah. which one of these two monsters right. do you want to devour you? There you go. Whereas whereas now now there's more choice. Not everyone's able to handle it. It's like in the same way that we all wanted the power of God, like, and technology's given us that. Like, social media is the power of God in that the nature of a God is to be omnipotent, so you're all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent. You can be everywhere at once. That if you look at a Twitter feed, that's how that works. That you can, if I don't like somebody, it doesn't matter if they're famous or not, I can, so, I can bypass their security and call them a prick. I got that power now. Anything I want to know in the world, I just got to type in a few words and it will be brought to me and I'll get what's trending on Twitter. So I know all that at once. And also, like, I can be everywhere as well because by the click of a button, I can find the thread of what's going on in different parts of the world. Now, you can ask yourself, based on how that's affected, did we really need to know what everyone's thinking all the time? Probably not. Because there's probably no. a lot of nice people out there who have a bad day and I probably bet a number of white comics, white, straight white men, who are normally nice guys in their day-to-day. But we're all subject to suggestion in our world. We're all subject to bad days. We're all subject to even very minute bouts of psychosis. We're all subject to that, because that's a part of our complex. And normally, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't know about it. That guy would have a bad day, he'd have a drink, he'd smoke something, he'd punch something, he'd walk it off and go back to normal. Your phone, however, is like a laxative. And what that means is <laughs> your mind starts, or verbal diarrhea comes out and you can't control it. Next thing you know, you've said something you probably wouldn't even normally say, or had you had the time to think about it a lot more, wouldn't say it. Now it's out there and this is now a representation of mm. who you are. And that's, that's what I we want are to know. as people is that like, not only have we done that, we've also, we've also created a whole new life form there's an artificial intelligence that exists now. And yeah. what people don't understand is it knows everything because we tell it the truth. So, you know, you're saying, you're saying Westworld. Yeah. That's, remember, well, that was yeah. the thing with Westworld is that the real twist was they were trying to work out the human algorithm and how people's minds work. And once they could work that out, they could place them into hosts. And yeah. that's what algorithms are like. We tell our browsing history what we want. And now we did now it's telling us what we want and how to think yeah we don't even know did you see did you see that um it was sort of like half dramatization and half documentary about facebook uh 
and it was about how it collects all this data and basically what it does is it draws a kind of like data science clone of you and builds up this picture of like this is what dane wants yeah. usually about five o'clock in the afternoon this is what aid wants like nine first thing in the morning let's ping him let's send him a notification and it's so like like i mean everyone sort of gets lost in the conversation about algorithms and um data warehouses and stuff but when you actually see it like dramatized yeah. with a guy acting out as though he is his own clone yeah um it's quite fucked up it's oh, like definitely. wow and it's fucked because there's so many other good applications that that could have and we just use it because they want to make money yeah it's a shame but i don't know i i have some faith that there oh, definitely. Some regulation that's what? brought in. I oh, think it, I don't think it'll stay like this for a long time. The pandemic time. for me has been, it's been tough, obviously, for many reasons. But for me, I consider it an act of a god because this pandemic taught me that for all the years I had previously, where I had these ideas about cabals and secret societies and other parts of society, they're all fucking idiots and they don't know what they're doing. And it is not a coincidence that two or three of the places that experiences the biggest casualties for the pandemic are the places that have historically been able to exploit labor for capital. Brazil, the States, and the UK, the highest death tolls. This is not a coincidence. It's because these countries all have capitalist economies which thrive off of labor force exploitation. And that labor force is largely made up of black and brown people. The same people they don't want to come to this country, but they also are hopelessly dependent upon to grow their economies. And so this is why initially a lot of people see that black and brown people are predisposed to have more risk of catching the virus because they have to go to work. Because if you don't work, you die and you can't provide for yourself. And so because these countries would encourage that to continue because most of the people in power there make money off of labor exploitation and capital gain, allow their mm. countries to continue as they were going. And that's why they're fucked. And for me, that was one of the, the that's, that's it's been one of the biggest epiphanies I've had since I started doing comedy. That these people don't know what the fuck they're doing. Even when people say like they're secret societies and they're going to, going to use us to c cut the population through vaccinations and depopulate us, that's fine. But you know what they haven't worked out? How to sustain those resources or to replenish them. So for anyone who may have even the smallest notion of any secret conspiracy, don't worry. The prime minister hid in a fucking fridge. What are you afraid of? <laughs> what are you worried about? They don't know what they're doing. They're dumb. And also, like, I spent, like, maybe 2018 to, to 2020 being like, the bees are going to fucking run out. What the fuck are we going to do then? <laughs> like, but yeah. no one knew what to do. Puts it like, in perspective. How, how are we going to replenish the bees? How are we going to replenish <laughs> the wildlife in the, in the, in the canals in Venice? The thing is, though, like with with like I have friends who are obsessed with like God knows what fucking tinfoil hat theories about the pandemic and uh, and the, the Great Reset and the vaccines don't work and it's all controlled and all that shit. Uh, and I always say, like, do you like num number one, in order for there to be some sort of global conspiracy, you'd have to be talking about China, working with the US, working with the UK, working with Russia. Like you think all these people have just decided to put a, put aside all of their differences. They've still, they're still doing sanctions against each other and they're still yeah. doing like hacking exactly. campaigns. But just, just for this, they've put all their tools yeah, down. The, they're like, the let's work population. together. As if that was hard when one yeah. in three people are gonna develop one form of cancer or another in their lifetime. Why do they need to do that? Right. Or they're trying to make us dumb or, or, or dumb us down. 
a bottle of white light is cheaper than a fucking newspaper. Like, it's not hard <laughs> to dumb us down. Like, it's even, even yeah. the fact where people are like, you know, they're just trying to reduce us with population. And see, that speaks to your privilege because if you, were, you would know, they already had a depopulation pandemic. It was called HIV. But because it only affected people on the continent of Africa and the LGBT community, nobody else noticed. Yeah. But now that's yeah. a livable disease. And before that was a motherfucking yeah. death sentence. It really was. If you got AIDS, yeah. that was you. And now it's a livable yeah. disease. But most straight people don't know how they were able to arrive at that point. Most people don't know about the early the early research into protease inhibitors and antiretroviral drugs. People had no idea about that stuff because it didn't have to bother them. Now, because there's a vaccine that has affects them, they're like, well, I'm not too sure, and blah, blah, blah. Like, think about, yeah, it's been 40 years since HIV showed up. Does it not stand to truth in the same way that 40 years ago, you had to use a rotary phone to dial, and now you can voice your concerns about vaccines on your phone tablet with no buttons? You don't think that viral technology is also improved along that same line as well? Like, come on, guys. Yeah. Why did, why did it happen so quickly? Yeah. Why did the vaccination come so quickly? Because it's been 40 years since they had to do it last time. And because you had the whole of the continent of South Africa, like Africa, particularly in South Africa, working on virology and people in America started virology. Yeah, they'd also, like, as far as I understand, and I'm, I'm not a virologist, but as I understand it, they'd already come so far with SARS. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Another pandemic that, that had a serious yeah. effect on people in Southeast Asia, but because it didn't happen in the West... Nobody cared. Yeah. So it's like empty shelfism yeah, again. No, yeah, exactly. Empty so shelfism. Well, Nobody cared because it didn't did, affect them. Now it's like, well, I don't know how I feel about this vaccine and blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, you've been taking vaccines. You had vaccines when you were born as well, and you didn't care then. Yeah. And if your concern is about the pollutants in your body, then you could look at the fact that they're putting sewage into the fucking water supply if you're that concerned. Or if you're that concerned, yeah. be concerned with the fact that there are more food banks in this country than there are fucking fast food restaurants. So if you're worried about the welfare yeah. of children, then you should do something about it then. But like, the, the other thing is, like, even if you put aside all of the... Let's say that these are people who are concerned about... That they think it's the Great Reset, that they think it's a... Uh, that it's all a big conspiracy, or, or even that it's not a global conspiracy, but it's something UK and like US-based. Or Like, I'm always like... Do you have any fucking idea? Like, if you if you've ever worked at a large company, um, I don't know like how how corporate your office job was before, but I've worked for a, about three or four big companies, and as soon as you've worked in one of those places, you know that these places are run like headless fucking they're chickens. Idiots. Nobody exactly. talks to they're anyone. Idiots. They don't like this is what people do at work. <laughs> you have a job to do. Uh, is there any way I can make my job easier and delegate that to somebody else? That's how all people work. So. All that's happened with this pandemic, the issue is not even the virus, really. It's the protocols that exist. Because remember, they were all like, we need to get the way to handle this virus. Like, based on what we know from SARS, that we need effective face masks and PPE in order to help the people working in NHS. And everyone understood that. And what happened was, yeah. somebody was like, my friend can get this for cheap, though, you know. Like, i got a good friend. Yeah. If I give him 10 million, yeah. like, we get to keep, like, a milli to ourselves. You know? Like, yeah. idiots do it normally at a workplace. In the same way that, like, you don't think people are like... You think Pri Patel thinks that Boris Johnson is a good, a good prime minister? She doesn't. No. But she has her own no. aspirations financially and professionally, and he facilitates those because she's probably stupid enough to not be able to do his job, to let her do what she wants. So she, she, at the mm. same time, he'd be like, well, if you're going to do the job, 
you have to be the one that says the things. So she goes, yeah, I'm not even let my own dad in this country. Even though we all know basic, <laughs> basic time travel theory dictates then, Preeti, if that happened, you would have had the fucking job in the first place, would you, stupid? <laughs> Very basic. <laughs> chaos, the chaos theory. You've yeah. created a paradox in your own life where you wouldn't be able to become the fucking... Do you think... Here's, here's a question for you. Do you think that when she is kind of weirdly, in, invertedly xenophobic yeah. against asylum seekers and immigrants, uh, do you think she's genuinely being like that? Like, she harbours um, reservations against, like, more foreigners coming into the country? Or do you think, like, is it really cynical that she knows that the sort of voter base is fucking rabid about immigrants and so she feeds into that she knows that's what the people want ish kind yeah, of definitely, which do you reckon it is the latter it's like she's like krs1 got a a, a a song called black cop and i think it's one of two things sometimes uh victims or survivors of trauma try and recreate the same paradigm with them being in a controlling position to uh rationalize their experiences okay uh, and so the way that applies to someone like Preeti Patel is that she already has an internal inferiority complex about her position and how she is viewed. And so right. she addresses that by overcompensating and being the worst example of a foreign minister that she can possibly be, because she's aware that when she goes on stage, people say, I know what you think. So she goes, so it's her, that's her being like, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. I'm brown. I'm going to show bias towards the brown ones. But in fact, I'm the worst of the. <laughs> I've literally. I've just. You just froze on my Skype there. My Skype couldn't handle your animation. This is it, yeah. Well, this is it. But the thing is, it's like. It's one thing for you to want to create more stringent or more structured immigration protocols. But to be like, I wouldn't even have let my dad in when that yeah. would have meant you would never be able to have the job in the first place. It's just insanity. Yeah. And there's, and there's loads of people like that as well. I, I think, you know, she definitely doesn't believe that because being a conservative, you would also have the economic awareness that in order for your economy to keep growing, you require immigrant labor. Well, that's the really fucked up thing about it, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's like once, once you actually start writing down figures and looking at spreadsheets and looking at graphs and look at how reliant we are, on bringing immigrants into the country to do the jobs that Britons frankly do not want to do unless unless there's a serious like uptick in wages uh we're, we're just not going to do it um so when you when you actually boil it down to brass tacks it's obvious that we need a constant influx of immigration so it's like well if you're supposed to be the natural party of government if we're supposed to be sort of looking at things sensibly in a measured, mature manner, then surely you can see that, you know, X plus Y yeah. equals Z. And then, but then it's like, blah, 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 like straight into the bluster, into the flag waving. And... Yeah. And, that's a, and that also coincides to, do you remember somewhere around when we started doing comedy, the popular, the popularization of the keep calm and carry on slogan? Remember yeah. when it came back in? It's not a coincidence that I came back in around the time that austerity became signed off in parliament. Mm. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't consider myself, but I'd say to everyone watching the stream, if you want to know why everything's gone fucking mental, it's cause in 2008, the banking industry fucked the entire global economy. And so they need everyone to forget. 
and they need to keep trying to find money out of somewhere. So you're basically watching the government rifle through the proverbial equivalent of a sofa, trying to find coins here and there. Yeah, there's, there's, this is something that's not really ever talked about. And uh, yeah. I, I had a financier on episode four or five of this podcast, uh, and he was saying similar like he was he was saying that the the 08 crash basically fucked everything it upended beyond belief and i don't think people understand how yeah. bad how bad how but badly they, fucked we are i i don't think anyone has any real perception of of how so since the 2008 crash like most people think oh yeah that was a bad little blip and then we fixed it Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling, Darling did some shit and now it's all good and we're just ticking along. Yeah. Most people don't understand that there's been this sort of decade of quantitative easing and we're just nursing. We're just slowly treating this wound that continues to bleed. Yeah. Uh, and this financier is a guy called uh, Tom Pontin. He was like, I mean, my, like his, he was saying like my, um, uh, my hope for the future is pretty dim. He was like, you know, I've, I've, taken part in some conversations around some tables that have scared the living shit out of me and oh, i think a lot of people are going to lose their pensions they're going to lose their homes and because oh, uh, i did comedy like when i was considering the financial aspect of it is that i was like you might as well do this because there's no pension when you're done working yeah there won't be a pension when you're done working so what difference does it make because there's people that worked hard their whole lives and they're not going to have a pension there are schools which come croydon is bankrupt that's a fucking london borough yeah and People will read the paper and see this rise in urban youth violence and rise in urban violence and sporadic attacks from people that would probably be, it should be in secure units or should be yeah. in like psychiatric facilities. And people aren't making the link. How can a London borough be bankrupt? If they're yeah. bankrupt, it means, you know what that means they don't have? You know, healthcare. That means all the primary care trusts or the short starts in Croydon, gone. That means yeah. if you've got care homes, salarized by government, gone if you've got people in secure units they're being turned out, back, back out onto the street and really yeah. truly, the money might not even be there for them to get their meds in the first place so when you read about yeah. these insane stories about people being randomly attacked and with machetes all this other crazy shit it's fucking mad and you know what's yeah. scarier is the fact one of the only prevalent industries that still exist in our country is defense right war economy that means for this country to still have some money for our balance of payments, which is in a massive deficit anyway, we have to keep selling weapons and torture implements. We have to. Mm. We, ha we have no other way to make money in the way the world exists currently. What that we means have... is that we will continue to arm both sides of the war, which means we have more refugees. But then we're like, we don't want to take them. What are they coming here for? We, <laughs> they know exactly why they're coming here. Yeah. We, we all, everyone, everyone saw what happened in Syria for ages. But this is like you're, you're making a fundamental mistake here, Dane, is you're, you're, you're bringing complexity and nuance again <laughs> to the conversation. Yeah. And people don't people just want the, the simple story like I like with with refugees, what they uh, and like selling arms to foreign nations. They won't look at any of that. They won't. They'll go, well, that's oh, I don't know. That all sounds quite complicated. So you say that we're selling arms to what country and what are they doing with it? And what like I don't even know anything about that civil war. What's that like what yeah. they will end up coming away with is just, uh, well, there's a successful British company. I don't want to I don't want to do bad to British, great British business and enterprise. So I'll leave that alone. And then you say there's some people jumping in dinghies. Oh, well, they, they want to steal my house. So, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll harpoon their fucking dinghy. Evil I, Britain I, haters. I know, and people say it, and I understand. But you know what? Oh, fucking well. Now it's time to grow the fuck up. Basically, <laughs> we've all had fun 
You've all enjoyed your relatively levels of peace. You've all enjoyed the rise of capitalism within the Western world. The fucking bill is here. So whoever was That's doing that, great... passing the bill around, I only had a drink. I only had a drink. Why am I paying this much? Yeah. The fucking bill is here. Yeah. And we're all going to have to chip in. And no one gets to leave the fucking table until the bill's paid. And that's, that's where it. we are globally. That's that's a great moment to leave this on. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, if you've been listening or watching the stream, um, Dane Baptiste is the star of Sunny D sitcom, uh, Bamus, and uh, you can check out, no doubt, a, a bunch of his stand-up online. Um, and you also host a podcast, right? Dane yes, Baptiste Dane Baptiste questions everything. So, yeah, cool. all of my links are available on my accounts, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for having me as well, Aid. Um, yeah, yeah so click on my link tree and you'll see all of the stuff I'm working on. Uh, I also have a new YouTube series as well called The A to Z of Blackness, uh, which I did with Little Dot Studios. So, yeah, all the stuff on the link tree, including the podcast. So I appreciate the support, guys. Um, but, yeah, it's exactly as it says on the tin, guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool, man. Um, yeah, thanks again, Dane. And, uh, yeah, next week I will be – actually, we're not doing a show next week because it's Christmas – uh, whoopee and uh, in a couple of weeks time I'm going to be talking to a chap about teleporting which sounds quite weird and wonderful is it possible are we ever going to be able to do it are we going to be beaming around like Star Trek um, and then we'll be back in the new year for a whole new season which I hate myself for saying season with podcasts it feels very pretentious yeah but it's, um, how, it's how people it's how people consume things now so you've got to talk in that way totally all right Should I, <laughs> I'll try it again we'll be back in the new year with uh, season three um <laughs> did it <laughs> I, th I was trying to work out is that like an audience noise or is dane sighing no that's the audience noise uh, oh cool okay but, some, but you know it's, it's social it's, it's digital media so some people will be like oh, i always thought season one was the best <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh all right cool um yeah thank you so much to everyone for listening and we'll catch up with you next time cheers goodbye bye